Well, welcome to another episode of Food and Conversation. I'm excited today. We're uh, talking to someone who's uh, far away from myself uh, so far that uh, the time difference is, I think, 12 hours, or it could even be 24. You'll have to correct me on that. But uh, so happy to have uh, Jennifer Tatabe, uh, who's a senior uh, lecturer in the sociology of education at the University of Auckland, who specializes in equity and social justice. And She's originally from Vancouver, Canada, where she graduated from the University of British Columbia uh, with a master's of higher education, a bachelor of education and bachelor of arts in English literature and history. Her work is informed by her teaching experience in primary, secondary and alternative education settings in the United Kingdom and Canada and uh, professional tertiary roles in student development and cooperative education. Her research and teaching examines the transformative potential of education in disadvantaged contexts by exploring the socioeconomic and political context of these educational spaces and their influence on teaching and learning. How are you doing, Jennifer? I'm doing good. Um, it's nice and early here. It is uh, 6 a.m. So uh, this is me getting my day started early. And yeah, life is good. It's the second day of spring here in Aotearoa, New Zealand. So I'm very excited that we're moving out of a very rainy winter. And I've got a slight break from teaching for about a week, so that's um, that's life at the moment. So it's going well. Six a.m. But you're so you're actually Friday there. Yes. Yeah. So you're yeah. I just remember because I mean it. It's been I'm trying to think over over twenty years ago, like more than twenty years ago. Like I I, I visited Aotearoa. Uh, is that is that how you said it, New Zealand? Aotearoa. Aotearoa, New Zealand. Yeah, it's been. Yeah, over 20 years. I spent two weeks there before going to do my teacher education program at the University of Western Sydney in Australia. And I always remember the time, like calling back home, the time difference, trying to trying to work that out. Wasn't always the easiest. And, and just the just being a day ahead. So so what, what do you see being okay. a day ahead that we don't see back here in Canada? Can you can you let us know? <laughs> You know what? Not much, except it is a cool New Year's because you were the first in the world to celebrate New Year's. So that actually is is a really special moment every year. But other than that, not really. So you're on your weekend when people are still working. So um, you got to plan those those um, phone calls and those Zooms quite carefully when you work with international colleagues, that's for sure. Look, we're getting ready for the academic term to start for kids to go back to school uh some have already gone back to school for example in quebec yes. or in the the Frank, francophone schooling system here in ottawa you you say you're taking a week they've just changed here the some of the pandemic policies around uh, um, self-isolation so if, if you do feel that you've come down or you test positive you no longer have to self-isolate for five days what you what you're asked to do is wear a mask and preferably stay at home so they've, they've just changed these policies in Ontario before heading back at least at the provincial level not not necessarily at the we'll see what the local health officials decide to do in relation to different school boards how has it been for you all in New Zealand going back I, and I asked this question because at the start of the pandemic New Zealand completely shut itself down in terms of who could visit and who couldn't visit and had very strict policies. And I know this because of Ruth Kane and when she went over to visit her relatives had to self-isolate for two weeks at the airport before being allowed to, to go and travel freely, which she said was kind of weird because once she, she did clear, like 
no one was wearing masks necessarily when she got out. So she had to get used to that. So how, how is it, how, how are things there in terms of the pandemic? And for you, now that you're back uh, teaching, you're, I don't know if your kids are at school or not. Yeah, the, the kids are in daycare, so that's that's good. And may it long last. They seem to get every single sickness every week. But um, <laughs> we're praying for a, for a five-day week this week. Um, so back when the pandemic first started, that was early 2020. As you said, New Zealand had one of the strictest lockdown procedures in the world. So no one was coming or going. And they also did um, snap lockdowns in certain regional areas. So Auckland was one of them. And it was quite interesting because there's lots of people that don't actually live in Auckland that commute in every day for work and for school. And so I know even through my own research, it caused great havoc because some students and teachers couldn't get to school because they live slightly over the border. And when I'm talking snap lockdowns, it's very different than in Canada. I'm talking about the police were actually there at every major road in and out of the city, preventing people um, crossing the Auckland border. And where we lived, we live right on the border between the Waikato and Auckland. Um, And that was one of the major routes that people used to enter the city. And so we had a police checkpoint, probably a kilometer away from our house. And you could see the long lines. And the only people with exceptions had to, you know, get government proof that, that they needed for purposes of work or otherwise to cross. So like people who are truckers, for example, people who might have been business, um, and you had to have, obviously, the medical certificates and, and work um, proof to get one of those. So it was really hard. Um, so when I talk to my friends and family in Canada, I know it's been hard for everyone. But, you know, just explaining some of those contextual differences was important. So that was 2020. And then we've had more lockdowns since. I think with every single one in terms of schooling, we've got slightly better with it. But it's hard for everyone. And I think some of my own uh, participants, particularly principals, were saying, that, you know, the pandemic just blew open some of the, the cracks in society that we knew about, all those inequities, but it started targeting a different pool of people. And that's the, you know, the middle class, people who were like pilots lost their jobs, for example, certain industries really hit hard. So it wasn't just the people they were expecting that suffered quite um, significantly in terms of financially. Um, there was just a, a larger pool of need. Um, so yeah, it's been quite hard. It's now opened up slightly. So it's exciting. People are now coming back in terms of the university. You know, we still have to isolate if you're a close contact. Masks are not mandatory in our university classrooms, but they're heavily, heavily advised. Um, so it is a bit tricky. And I'll say um, just from a lecture or um, professor perspective, I spend a lot of my time <laughs> talking with students who are isolating or sick and I've given out extensions at a level I've never seen before just because so many people are ill. It certainly calls for more compassion or to be mindful of students' lived experiences outside the context of your classroom and how that impacts it, I'd say. I mean, I mean at least it, it did for me, especially in 2020 when I was teaching um, some online courses. And then last year, it, I mean, you had, you always had one or two students that all of a sudden for a week, they're like, you know, our, our household has COVID-19 or I do. And, and, yeah. and, 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 and until you experience it and the kind of tiredness and, and again, depending on the, where you are in the continuum in terms of the symptoms, it's hard to really be mindful or empathize unless you go through that. So trying to, trying to be better, I don't know for all of you, but just trying to be more mindful of that as we enter this term as well. Absolutely. Yeah, I've always, you know, given students that I, I just believe you, you know, if, you know, you have to support them. And you if they tell you they're sick, you just believe that. I mean, a lot of my colleagues said, oh, you need notes, you know, medical certificates. Hmm. And I just said, look, you know, we need to think about it. 
no one is going to be lying that they have COVID. Like nobody wants this thing. And if a few people slip by, that's fine. But I always err on the side of compassion, and empathy, and and certainly um, you can see it in students. They are tired. They're they're stressed. And um, I just think that we have to be good humans. Like let's just be good humans, you know, yeah. and help people out. Yeah. And so if that means I have to process extensions for a, for a, an hour like I did last week, so be it. And if we have to mark past the deadline, so be it. I just think we need to be kind and good to one another. I mean, they they were having that conversation last week here at our university in terms of, okay, what do you do or how do you accommodate uh, students that are going to be sick? And, and And part of it was, if we're going to request notes at a pragmatic level, you're going to have like hundreds of students now going or trying to see doctors for these medical notes to, instead of us just being, as you say, like kind human beings and empathetic to uh, the students needs, which I, which, you know, all those students that I've had that, you know, that have been sick, they've been sick and they, and they've needed that support and they, and super appreciate it too, that to take their time to come back and, and all of them have, have, have come back and, and taken up the work that they, had committed to uh, while they were gone and come back. So, I mean, that might not be the case for all students in uh, different classes, but uh, I want to ask you a little bit more um, about the kind of specificity in terms of the context of inequities that uh, you had conversations with principals due to the pandemic. So, I mean, in conversations with the principals over here and some of the groups that I, I'm able to collaborate with, they indicated that it, it really amplified some things that were kind of out of sight, out of mind for them as a school community. But before I do, I just want to, I want to ask you one more question though, about your own context. If you, you feel comfortable enough sharing about that is, you know, your family is here in Canada. So how has that been? Like, I, did you, did you have opportunities in terms of when New Zealand was locked down to, to leave and come back? Or was it like when they shut things down, you stayed there. And, I, and I, I don't even know if you had like on the horizon, like trying to visit with family or check in or do that kind of stuff. I was able to see my uh, brother, my, my brother, who's uh, 13 months younger. I hadn't seen him for for the, the entire duration of the pandemic until this past July when myself and my other brother and his family, we went out and visited with him. But until then, it was it was just on Zoom. And we was, so we traveled out to Vancouver and then uh, spent some time with him in, in certain parts of British Columbia. But until then, I, I hadn't seen him like in physical presence for two years. So I, has that been the same for you in terms of your family? Yes. So the last time I saw them was um, just before I came to visit um, you and Ruth and uh, Michelle at uh, University of Ottawa in 2019. So that was on my sabbatical. Um, so that's the last time wow. I've been home. And I haven't been able to come back yet um just for practical reasons so between the time i saw you and now i've had two two children who are who are young obviously can't be vaccinated and i think there's some real genuine and authentic concern around traveling with them when they're that little um so the youngest mm-hmm. one just turned one last week wow. and then the other one's two and a half going on 25 um <laughs> already so yeah traveling with young kids is is difficult as it is but negotiating you know all of those other issues around health and and that has been tricky so i'm hoping to come back home next year i'm on sabbatical january through june 2023 um so hoping to get in a trip that way uh that way and then my first trip out of country will actually be end of this year so in the southern part of the world conference season is kind of october november december um so i'm going to go to double ARE, which is the australian um 
research and education conference and that's in Adelaide so that'll be my first time on a plane Nicholas in in so long um so it's just been FaceTime Zooms phone calls which has been quite hard um so I'm looking forward to getting back into the world well I hope I hope when you do come to Canada if you're passing through Ottawa you let you let us know so that that is like I mean just trying to make that trip with with kids that young Oh, I couldn't even think of it. Like that would be a long flight by 17, 15 and 13 year old as well. So it's, it's a, it, that's a long jaunt over to come over and, and then to have those other things that the larger, wider co- context of the pandemic. But uh, yeah, so coming back to, you had said like that the pandemic for the principles that you collaborate with and, and do research with, that it amplified different inequities. Uh, I, I was wondering, I, I, I appreciated the different articles that you sent me. And um, I wondered too, because, you know, like, look, you just provide the example between of travel and the, and the way in which they had shut things down between Auckland and then other communities outside and whether they're like the suburbs of Auckland per se, or then rural, the rural communities. And I really appreciate that first article of how you look at with your colleagues, this kind of transition of people choosing, perhaps maybe they're not choosing, but they're moving to these other communities that are smaller outside of large urban centers like Auckland and then principals and school communities having to welcome negotiate the kind of different intercultural context of someone or families who've grown up in a larger city now coming with certain expectations and going to a school in a smaller community. And I'm wondering in terms of what impacts did the, in light of the, that research that you did there, you call it like a urban, ur- <laughs> like that word urban, the kind of at the nexus in between <laughs> of this transition yeah. and, um, and the pandemic, uh, you know, the implications of the pandemic in highlighting or amplifying some of the inequities that you've been having conversations with the principal. So, yeah, I know there's a lot there, but I, I mean, how has that been, how's, how's the pandemic, you know, provoked you to think about that kind of research or the research in, in light to your everyday lived experience and conversation with principals around that transition between the, the, the urban and, and rural and in terms of what your colleagues called r- r- urban? Mm, yeah, so urban is a new term that I learned, but it's actually in the academic literature as a sort of body of, of, of um, scholars who talk about it in different disciplines. Um, so my my uh, rural project, my rural schools project is my passion project at the moment. And so we are looking at sort of what I would call the fringe of areas around major cities. And it's happening across Aotearoa, but I suspect it's happening elsewhere and perhaps in other contexts as well, because I know that the housing market um, around the world is, um, you know, getting a bit tighter, particularly in some of the big centers. I imagine, you know, Ottawa, you know, Toronto, Vancouver, certainly. And so what it is, is that people aren't able to afford homes in major cities like Auckland. So the average house price before the pandemic was was 1.1 million, uh, which is absolutely wild to me because the homes are quite different than they are in, in Canada. So they're mainly one, one level homes. A lot of them are ex-state homes. Um, so, you know, brick and mortar type places, three bedrooms or less. And they don't have much insulation or double glazed windows for Canadians listening. So they're quite cold <laughs> homes and they're still worth a million dollars. So what people are finding is that um, they're moving farther and farther outside the um, CBD, the central business district, or downtown, if you will. So what we're finding is these farmers or people who own a bit of land are selling off their land and they're getting subdivided. 
into um, these new housing developments. And so we're talking about uh, an area that was previously farmlands with sheep and rolling hills and now has 10,000 people in it. And it's happening very quickly. And so that's sort of what I'm looking at is what does that mean for schools? And it's quite interesting because um, I grew up in Vancouver. I am a city slicker, um, quite happily so. And I found myself actually living in one of these places myself because we found ourselves trying to buy a house and we, were, we weren't willing to you know, pay that much money for what you're actually getting. So we built our own new house in one of these uh, new developments and it opened my eyes to this issue. So it actually just came down to me looking around and saying, I see an issue here. I'm a researcher. I have some skills. I want to know more about this. And it turned into this research project. Um, and it was talking about, you know, we look at um, school boards and principals and how they are responding to this really rapid change. And like you say, the, the biggest thing that's coming out is you have very divergent populations. You have people who are longstanding residents in rural areas who still live on farms and have the traditional agricultural life many times. And then you have city slickers who literally come just outside the city borders and then travel in every day, you know, to the city to be bankers and, you know, all sorts of lawyers and that sort of thing. And they have different expectations of what the school should be doing, the vision of the school, the resources, the engagement with staff. And um, it's quite interesting from a sociological point of view. But in terms of going back to your question of what does it mean for the pandemic, Again, I think it just showed the fissures in society that were there, but just made them more visible and, and increased the number of people that it was that it's applicable to. So another example is a number of care packages that schools, school boards, and even teachers and principals um, actually were giving out to families. So when I say packages, I mean food packages, I mean resources for learning, um, like school packs, you know, things like paper and pens. Um, another thing that may not have come through the article was also in rural areas in New Zealand. I know it's shocking for many Canadians, but um, there is no internet. There is no, you know, Wi-Fi. There isn't even dial-up internet. Some of these places are so rural, they just don't have internet in general. So um, it's quite interesting that, you know, everyone says, oh, we'll just do online learning. But for a lot of my participants, they don't have access to that. So how do you keep in touch with the world and society, but also how do you learn when you're so rural, there is no internet service. And also there's no mobile service and quite a few of them don't even have landlines anymore. So we had some schools who literally said that driving out in their trucks and delivering this package of food might've been the only way of communicating with some of these families. Wow. And uh, I mean, look, they're in rural, there's different rural communities here where it might've been the same Thing. And, and for example, but it didn't even have to be uh, here in Ottawa. What, one of the things when the, the pandemic first started and everyone, you know, families here in Ottawa were told, look, your kids are going to be learning online from home this year. What the principal said was what they didn't know at their school was that for some families, they just assumed that they had those things. They had a computer at home. They had connection to the Internet. And what they soon realized was there were several families that didn't have any internet. They didn't have, they might've had one mobile phone that the whole family was sharing, but one parent needed for work. And so there was huge inequities in terms of accessibility. And then even if you did have access, let's just say if you're fortunate enough to have dial up, the sharing the bandwidth amongst two or three kids, if you have them at home and you're, and then you're working at home, it just slowed everything down. So the connectivity at the start the infrastructure wasn't there. So there's, there was so many inequities for different, 
different students, different families, depending on their own lived, lived experiences and context at the start of the pandemic. So even though, you know, we might have been in the same storm together, uh, we didn't necessarily have the same kind of boats to navigate and access the different resources we needed during uh, the pandemic. Uh, I, I, you know, like we were for, like in our household, yeah. we, we were fortunate we had access to the internet and, and privileged for me to be able to work from home, but we still had issues around bandwidth. Yeah, I would be at the start just, hey, who's slowing down the internet? They're like, dad, we're just attending school. <laughs> like, <laughs> Stop getting so frustrated. So, yeah, so I, I, I mean, coming back, like in that article, you talk about how principles, depending on, and again, I, I don't know in, in, since publishing the work that you've done in terms of your own lived experiences, for some of the participants in that one piece, their their viewpoint is like, look, <laughs> the city slickers need to acclimatize or acculturate to living in the current context that we're, we're, we're within. And then the other perspective might be, hey, how, how are we changing as a community, as a community change to serve the different needs of the different communities? So I, I'm not, you know, in terms of your research, how are the principals trying to navigate those tensions between community members and families that have been there for quite a while and, and had been living there to newcomers coming from the city now and the shifting dyna- dynamics and the population makeup of the community and the school. Carefully. <laughs> <laughs> it's, as you say, it's, 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 I would say all of them would probably agree with the, the term, you know, ongoing and also fluid. I mean, these are conversations that they revisit very frequently. I think what's interesting about most of the schools, though, is that they have just really take pride in that identity as being rural. So obviously that looks different, but still maintaining some of the essence of what that means is really important to them. And I think that all of them are trying to hold on to that quite, quite fiercely, and they're doing it in different ways. So some of them might just stick really close to their vision, for example, um, you know, and, the, and their mission of the school. Uh, and their charter that they're required to have. I think others are holding on to that in terms of um, some of the events that they hold. So, for example, um, it's a, it was a new thing for me as a Canadian here, but um, it's called Calf Club Day. And it literally means calf. So, historically, you would bring your calf to school and it would sit on the school field for a while. And you'd you know, talk about it in different ways, according to different sort of subjects. You might bring a sheep. Obviously, when you have these new developments and these new homes of three, four, five bedrooms... Um, cropping up within 16 to 20 weeks. So that's the other thing to keep in mind. Uh, we're talking about 16 to 20 week builds, so four to five months from ground nothing to a brand new house with a family living in it. So it is fast. It goes, it is, it is fast. So what they're doing is they still have those days, but they might call it a festival day or, um, and instead of bringing your um, cow or your sheep or whatever, you might bring your pet bunny. Um, you might, um, you know, go in with a couple other families because um, you don't have any pets and you might do it as a group. But maintaining that um, identity and some of those quintessential elements of what it means to be rural for some of these schools is something that they're really holding on to. And then I think it's just um, the principals will say they'll talk to the parents, you know, tell us tell us more about what you want. And here's what we, you know, can can assist with. But keep in mind that this is our school motto. This is our school vision, but it is tricky. And they've all said that in many different ways. And the context, like one of the things I was wondering when I was reading that article, I mean, it it is in relation to a specific geographical context 
of sure. New Zealand and then a, a certain demographic. So, and I, I, and I had no clue. Like I was like, you know, are there Maori students that are part of the school? Are there uh, Maori farmers there? Because when I read the second article, the, the second one that I read after that one was the one on the, the curriculum and the, and the one in which you analyze how inequities are addressed or not in terms of economics uh, curriculum. And I'm probably not situating it right, but you were looking at how, finan- how financial literacy was being taken up or not in different schools. But at least in that article, you mentioned like, look, in relation to some of the case studies that we uh, have, have uh, assembled here, there were some of the case studies that involved Maori students or communities, and then and then certain descendants from the from the Pacific, or and what I was gathering from that was Pacific Island Islanders, perhaps. Yes. Right. And so, what you know, in terms of the demographics and that transition between, again, and I was just using this example, Auckland to small smaller communities. What is it? Is it kind of quite a diverse cultural makeup in terms of those? that make up the initial rural community versus those that are migrating from the city to those smaller communities. I didn't get any sense like in terms of that. So, but I was curious as a reader, like what those added dimensions, Mm. uh, what's going on there in terms of the school? Yeah, it's a great question. So traditionally speaking, if you're talking about rural New Zealand, it's predominantly Pakia or people of European descent. Okay. And then you'd have a portion, you'd always have proportion who might be uh, Maori. So we know that, um, Maori obviously live across New Zealand, but certainly there are pockets that have um, a higher proportion of Maori students, and certainly some rural areas are are in that category. Um, But most of the areas that I talk about in this um, research tend to be overwhelmingly Pakia or European. And what's interesting about that is that um, with the new um, residents coming in with these new developments, you have they're experiencing unprecedented ethnic and cultural diversity. For example, one school was, I think they had a few Maori families and all the rest are Pakia. And now they have a very, uh, I think it's now up to 12% uh, Indian and very closely followed by Asian and lots of um, immigrants from other countries, you know, dotted along, you know, different groups. And the reason for that is that um, the government actually put in a, a housing policy where new immigrants had to buy new homes. So what it was is it was trying to protect and cool the housing market so that existing homes would be for New Zealanders because there was a cry out for saying, well, you know, all these new homes, no one can buy them uh, if you're a New Zealander. And so this new requirement was that you had to buy a new build. So what we're also seeing is because of that, the cultural and ethnic dynamics mean that there's lots of new immigrants to the country in these new areas. And that's hard because a lot of them will say to you, well, but the community my community or the few people from my country that I want to connect with live in the city previous to this policy and, you know, putting, putting new immigrants into rural areas where there's less resources, most of the time, not always, but generally speaking, um, less transportation, for example, less cultural groups is hard because it's quite isolating. To me, the complexity of, of what you just shared there, I'm I'm now thinking of the principal and, and teaching staff are do, are they having conversations in terms of the communities of principals and teachers that you're fortunate enough to work with about concepts like culturally relevant or responsive or relational curriculum in relation to the these uh, new immigrants that are then coming and buying these new homes and living in the community now going to the school? 
or is that yeah so again just in terms of reading the article i i was wondering you know if that is the case like what's the conversation around the various pedagogical approaches and then uh and curriculum in the sense of thinking about other cultures i think it's something that they can definitely everyone can work on but i think we're quite fortunate in Aotearoa, new zealand in the sense that there is a, a lot of work amazing work going on uh, both in research and in the practitioner space about culturally relevant pedagogy. I mean, that's been going on for years. So, you know, we have, and also for Pacific communities. So we have the Pacific Education Plan and we have, you know, Hakitia. We have different policy documents that are research informed for different groups. And I think what's nice about that is that many of the research findings are applicable, you know, across different cultural groups. So for example, one of the biggest things coming out, one of the, the documents we always, um, talk about is you know culturally relevant like no people no students names pronounce them correctly you know allow them to bring in some of their you know um cultural background into the classroom i mean those are universal so while it may be talking about maori pacific students i think it's very easily transferable across different diverse cultural and ethnic groups so i think that's very helpful but certainly in terms of the demographics and also, again, those those social connections, that's something that I think is very practically at the school-based level, something that they're grappling with. And also the students are grappling with as well, because some of these students, you know, might not have seen anybody other than their few Maori Pakia, um, you know, connections before. Um, and so I think we also need to think of what the student experience is, is like. And that's not something I've specifically looked at in my research, but actually it's something I'm considering for the next phase of this research is to get more student voice and more, and more teacher voice about what it means, you know, actually in a classroom. That leads into the, your second article. And you had mentioned like, look, there's, there's policy documents out there. There's actually ones that can be very generative and taken up in, in relation to whether it's opportunities for school administrators or teachers to do professional learning around or in relation to to them and some are already doing that and you looked with your your with some of your colleagues at uh, in your piece called locating inequality in the, in in the New Zealand curriculum specifically you were looking at New Zealand's secondary curriculum and the Ministry yeah. of Education supported and I'm not going to get this right I think tekete ipurangi is that how you say it Yes. Okay. Yes. Well done. <laughs> All right. Online teaching resources. Um, you say, uh, despite an increasing awareness of global inequality, there's minimal research on how inequality is represented in with the New Zealand curriculum and its implications mm-hmm. for teaching and learning. And your article tries to draw attention to several insights. So uh, mm-hmm. the general superficial level of engagement with inequality within the curriculum that was largely yes. concentrated in the social sciences over other subject areas and an alternative emphasis on financial capability of students and personal financial responsibility for their financial well-being and an underlying social, cultural, neoliberal undertones associated with the individual financial responsibility narrative within the curriculum and ministry education, teaching support resources. So how you, you know, like how did this uh, specific research come to be in relation to its its this kind of iteration in this article and I and again I enjoyed reading it and uh, and the way in which you framed it and, uh, and and really the latter half too in terms of when you guys when, when you all discuss the implications uh, that we need to consider 
So this actually was the Ottawa connection, Nicholas. So I went, ah. I went to AERA and I, I, I heard Professor Joel Westheimer talking about this and he had a sort of curriculum project. And while it didn't sort of pan out that we, you know, got on board for various reasons, I just said, well, I think this is really something that we can just adapt um, because it's something I'm th- that I'm thinking of because my personal background in classroom teaching is always in uh, what we call here low decile schools, which are schools who have a higher proportion of students from low SES backgrounds. But, you know, when I taught in the UK, I taught in a very impoverished area of, of London in England. And, you know, I've taught in similar schools um, in Canada. And it's just, you know, an interesting thing for that I am interested in as a human and, and as a teacher. And so I thought, well, let's let's take a look. Let's really see what's going on. And I was quite shocked that no one had done it before that, uh, or at least had, had written about it. So we, we did look for um, economic inequality. So we're looking for anything to do with that. And like you said, we found it mainly in social sciences and, and business or economics courses. But what I think was the most shocking thing for me is that it didn't. It never said poverty. There's no mention of poverty. Like the, the wording was so discursive. You know, let's look at the economic spheres was my favorite quote from from the documents. You know, what's an economic sphere? I mean, what's that mean to a young person um, without actually saying, you know, the real terms? And we definitely found that it was all about personal responsibility. So budgeting, making sure you can take care of yourself. You're not going to be a ward of the state in the future. Um, But also, I think, as you say, the cultural and ethnic lens, and that's what we talked about in a certain section, is that some of these case studies were for specific schools. And if you look at those schools and they have a higher population of Mara Pacifica students, they tend to be in uh, lower socioeconomic areas. And it was just so basic. It was just like, here's how you count bills. Here's how you budget. Here is your grocery shop. And I thought, oh my goodness, this is this is wild. And then you'd look at other schools who are in a higher socioeconomic areas and, and some of the higher level um, curriculum levels. And they're talking about the stock market and international trade. And so I was thinking, well, what's going on here? So obviously that was a bit of concern if you're sitting from my perspective and you're interested in equity, because I think everyone should have access to, you know, very, you know, strong and enriching curriculum. And I definitely see a divergent level of access, or at least from the documents that we saw. But again, these were all Ministry of Education sponsored and developed curriculum resources. So if you think of that in terms of the policy level, that's again, sends quite a strong signal as to some of the views behind that. And so we were obviously a bit concerned about that. And we said, no, we need to keep writing about it. So since this article, we've we've gone back and we said, okay, in phase one, we looked at the curriculum documents themselves and the supporting resources from the ministry. Now we're actually going to talk to teachers. So how do you enact the curriculum? How do you talk about inequality? And we looked at um, secondary school teachers across a range of disciplines, from English to business to history to PE. And it was quite interesting to hear what they talked about. And we're currently still finishing up the analysis and writing up that portion. And I mean, you do say like in this piece when you were looking at that, and I'm wondering when you're interviewing the teachers now, kind of in, in your preliminary analysis of what you're doing, you say in this piece, there's a fine line between def- deficit theorizing and social commentary. Mm. Some of our data suggests yeah. that certain curriculum materials use social commentary that may portray an assumption that certain cultures' financial capabilities are in- inadequate in comparison to their peers. And I'm wondering if that yeah. same kind of that tension between or the differences discursively between the two are also you're seeing that when you're interviewing teachers. 
a little bit and I was heartened by that. I thought we'd see more, but they are very aware. Yeah. And it's interesting. We, we made a very purposeful effort to look at the low decile schools and the high decile schools to see if that at all influenced how they were talking about inequality in terms of the curriculum and their teaching and pedagogy. And I would say across the board, no matter where you taught, they are aware of it. But what's very interesting is all the teachers in the low decile schools are more aware of what that means. So it's not an abstract concept to them. They see it every day in their schools. They also are the ones that talk um, more explicitly in greater depth about how their students also know. Like they know that they live in a certain area. They know the stereotypes that go around that and how they have that personal experience to supplement what they're seeing as a, you know, learning as a concept. And that came through as sort of the, the, the clearest in those particular areas. And to me, it doesn't, it's not shocking information. Like I think kids are very astute um, and they, they have access to the world through their phones and, and, you know, what they see in the media. So they're very aware. And I think in New Zealand specifically, there is a, there's a cultural narrative that it's called the land of milk and honey. There is no poverty. I mean, it was supposed to be in colonial days, a place where you could come from England and start your new life. And there was no social hierarchy. I mean, this is part of the myth and that cultural narrative, and it's very strong. And I've seen it in other research projects that I've done. In fact, one of them was with, in my PhD, I looked at how teachers understand poverty in teacher education, so pre-service teachers. I talked to all the teacher educators and program leaders, and they also said the same thing, is that there is a narrative where these students come with that idea that uh, there's no poverty. I've never seen it. I, I Everyone in my school, you know, had a bike and went on, you know, vacations every year. So there is a, le- a very strong cultural aspect to that. This refusal, like Linda Tutai-Smith, who's, you know, very famous, and I know uh, many Canadian scholars who know who she is. Um, she says, you know, that there's a refusal to see and to act about this and that we can't keep turning a blind eye to this and that it is here. And I see that with my students who are going to be teachers. And that's that's the work that I get to do and have the privilege to do is to open their eyes to some of this. And, you know, OK, if you say there's no poverty, let's look at this article. Let's 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 look at this video. Let's let's look at this and, you know, hear from students talk about poverty. And you can just see the light bulb go on. And that's the stuff that fuels me is that they can no longer deny that it's not there. I mean, that coming back to when I was mentioned the principals saying the things came to light is that you have students come to your school every day and they're doing well, but not seeing the poverty when the pandemic hit. And then yeah. not, you know, families coming forward saying like, look, we don't have access. We can't afford to pay for the monthly bills for, for internet and that. And I do. So, so how do you, how do you have a conversation around poverty in the sense of uh, not having the means of act, like economic accessibility to certain things without reducing like the student or the family to being poor or impoverished. I don't know if that makes sense. Like you can be kind of rich with gifts in other ways, but economically impoverished in certain ways. And maybe not even, and when I say impoverished, I mean, economically impoverished in terms of the senses, not being able to afford and having, you know, and having the privilege to make other choices or other opportunities that other families will have because they have more money to do so. So there's that opportunity gap in terms of because of the okay. finances and that language versus like poverty. So I don't know, like, cause I'm, you know, so 
Is, yes. Was that some of the mindset in terms of the, the document that went into it? I, I have no clue. So that's why I'm asking you. And what are your thoughts on the use of, of the terminology or discourse of poverty versus opportunity and the way in which you trouble the, the, the you know, mm. not stereotyping families and individuals with that deficit, deficit language or, mm. yeah, thank or you identity? For, yeah. yeah, thank you for asking that question because it's something that I definitely reflect on frequently. So I have the tremendous privilege of teaching a couple courses at the first and second year undergraduate level. And they're on our city campus and they're called the, it's through the liberal arts program. So anyone across the university in any faculty can take it. And they are the courses that I just thrive on. And so I do talk about poverty because I think they need to know that this is some of the language that's being used. But the way I trouble it is I always take it from a structural perspective. So I am very careful and very purposeful in saying, you know, no one chooses to be in this situation. And let's look at some of the reasons why this might be the case for some people. So it's not about the individual and going down that deficit lens. It's about saying, well, let's look at employment policy. Let's look at housing policies. Let's look at the health care system. And so we look at all these different factors that, 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 that contribute to someone's personal situation and then how that resonates you know, through from society to schools, right? Because schools are just a microcosm of society, right? They just reflect what's going on in, in our wider world. And so I make it very clear that there are these reasons, these big structural sector sort of reasons why somebody might not be able to afford the internet. So, so that it really shifts away from that blame and shame or deficit theorizing. And I think that's quite helpful to talk about. And then we also talk about the other side of the coin, because I think it's very easy to talk about poverty and racism and sexism and all those things. And that's a concept over there about other people. So I know about it versus saying, well, now let's look at the other side of the coin and that's privilege. So, you know, I've, I've really started in the past probably three or four years to take that angle as well. It's like, okay, let's think about who we are and some of the supports that we might've had to get us into this place where we might be able to go overseas every year and what that means. And the other thing that I talk about that uh, I love to talk about that causes a lot of trouble for some students is whiteness. So in the past three years, I've started talking about whiteness, white supremacy, <laughs> white violence, what that looks like, because you can't, for me, you can't talk about racism if you can't talk about whiteness because they go hand in hand. One, you know, allows the other to exist, right? So that's really hard with teacher education students and also just general students because it turns yeah. the mirror onto themselves. And it's, and then I make it very clear, this is not about making you feel bad for who you are and your background because you don't choose what you look like and how you come into this world. But you do need to understand that some of us walk the world with enormous privilege that we didn't really necessarily earn from our own merits. It's just that we were given it and that's great and you are who you are, but to recognize that other people don't have that. And so how does that privilege then feed into this idea of poverty or race or culture, however what you want to talk about it. Well, yeah, and the and the, the structural system of settler colonialism to create exclusive exactly. privileges for certain members of the community while excluding others from those exclusive privileges. That's I try to try to think of it like they're exclusive to only a certain member of the, members of the population while others are excluded from those exclusive privileges based on the way in which they they're racialized on the continuum of whiteness and and other, right? Uh, just coming back to that like and having that conversation, you Completely. do say in the article like mm -hmm. And, and here's where you critique the Ministry of Education's curriculum 
you say the individual financial responsibility narrative also aligns with the Ministry of Education's neoliberal business and economic outlook on education. The emphasis is on personal financial risk. So, you know, if you're poor, it's because it's because of, of, of the choices you've made, not not the structural issues. And responsibility reflects core neoliberal ideas of enhanced individual entrepreneurial freedom and skills and reducing government intervention in favor of promoting free market economics and globalization. Uh, so I really appreciate how you you and your colleagues address that. And then I, I want to ask you about that the, the the last article you sent in in relation to where you're at in, in terms of your career. But I but before I do, I, I mean, you do trouble again in the last section, like just near the end. One of the main concerns you have because you see these yes. corporate partnerships with schools is you 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 all say are concerned in terms of those kind of partnerships, corporations with schools and what they're they're providing in terms of materials to teach. Know about economics and businesses. Our concern relates to the political and economic influence of private businesses and schools, and on students' financial uh, capability development. A central question regarding private business involvement in state school education is: In what ways do private businesses and sponsors benefit from exposures to students in schools? Um, I wonder if they even have to go into schools anymore. Because if you know, for this, for the students that do have cell phones, they—I mean, the corporations access you right, mm-hmm. right at the tip of your hand. <laughs> so your your the third article, uh, well, actually, it was a book chapter that I read. You and your colleagues again. I really appreciate it. it was uh, the the research methodology that you all brought to was autoethnography and a way of storing and troubling. The concept of navigating uh, early, mm-hmm. being early career academics and charting a research tra- trajectory in the in the neoliberal university, and so again, I'm just curious, how did this chat book chapter come to be, and what was what was the impetus for for writing it and uh, collaborating with the, your two colleagues on this on this auto ethnographic piece? Yeah, thanks for the question again. Um, I am so lucky that I got to work with two of my colleagues. So I have a, a phenomenal mentor, Professor Carol Match, who is actually one of my PhD um, supervisors and has now become a mentor, colleague, and friend. And she runs this group for early career scholars because she saw a need. You know, a lot of us are just thrust into this and have no idea how the university really works from the nitty gritty of how do I access, you know, this booking for a room to, you know, how do I navigate some of these tensions? And so she had a monthly group for anyone across our faculty to join her. And she would just lead different topics each month. And and a lot of it would just be peer to peer discussions and just a little bit of a support group because it's hard. As you know, when you start your first academic job, um, there's lots of pressure on you nowadays. And so I knew Mo, my other uh, co-author, because we were doc students together. We weren't in the same school in our faculty, but we always knew each other and got on very well. And he saw this call for book chapters and he said, you know what, let's let's kind of resist here. Let's resist this competitive neoliberal environment by co-authoring and let's talk about our experience to push back a little bit. Um, and that's really how it came about. In terms of your own lived experiences now at uh, where you're working, how, how has that been? Like, I mean, there's certain kind of narrative tropes that you put forth as in terms of subheadings. So like whether it's, uh, I mean, you call one section yes. like like higher education is like Game of Thrones. Like you're like, you don't know if you're going to be killed off from week to week. Yes. <laughs> like am I the next character that's going to be killed <laughs> off? Am I the next, uh, you know, assistant <laughs> professor Who's going to be, whether it's the workload or it's like one of the, you know, my, one of my colleagues not supporting my file. Do you have uh, uh, others in terms of like 
colleagues that are out there and support uh, like your mentor. So yeah, what how how have you navigated now that you've been working at the University of Auckland for for some time? And I, I you know I ask you this question now, and I'm putting you on the spot. I don't want to get you in trouble. Like <laughs> like Nick, let me tell you. <laughs> but yeah, just in general, like maybe in general terms, like how how has that process been and what kind of advice would might you have say for like PhD students uh, on the verge yeah. of finishing up their, their uh, studies and, and making that transition? Yeah. So I'm, I'm so happy you asked that question. Cause that's actually the reason why I gave it to you. I really want to talk about, you know, the, the challenge of entering the, the Academy and also thanks for uh, referencing the game of Thrones. Uh, <laughs> uh, 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 title there. We snuck that in and Mona, Mona said, do you think we're going to get away with this? we're just gonna go for it and and it got in <laughs> no one said anything to us but we really do i think they all agree <laughs> i think they all agree unfortunately <laughs> well we just thought it's so spot on so yeah i would say navigating it is careful and the only thing i would say when because now it's kind of come full circle now i have a great group of um, phd candidates and i also have a great group of master's students and one of the things i always say to my doctoral students right away is if you want an academic career please let me know and we'll start thinking about how we can help to get you there but also i'm very open and, and, and transparent with them on what that actually means and i the only answer to your question is i do it carefully i i have a couple of great mentors across the university and also internationally and the other thing i say to new academics because now it's sort of again full circle i've really pushed very hard to get funding from our faculty to mentor first, second, third year, you know, academics, whether you come in the traditional route as, you know, tenure track or whether you're a research fellow. So that's sort of um, a research only position, whether you're on contracts, which is now becoming increasingly prevalent in New Zealand. That was not the case when I started about 10 years ago of how can we support you in the academy? And so I've managed to get a research committee, but a subcommittee group uh, about mentoring and get some money to hopefully get some workshops going um, the second half of the year. So I think it's important to tell people that it's it's challenging and you need to pick your battles, Game of Thrones wise. Um, but you also need to, I think the core is you need to figure out who you are. And I think that comes through this chapter is you had to figure out that question we go back to is what kind of academic do you want to be? And you make that choice purposefully. And we know we talk about the complicity part of it, but I think part of that is picking when you're going to follow along and when you're going to say no or hold a boundary. Yeah, I think that's part of the article as well, is just co-publishing, being good to colleagues, and pushing back against that hugely competitive nature of academia. I think it's gotten worse. I mean, I can see it in my own career, but certainly you've been here a lot longer than I have. Back in the day, you could, you didn't have to have five-plus publications to just get hired, right? And nowadays, yeah. we're talking about five-plus and, you know, highly ranked academic journals, which I problematize anyways, like what is really high ranking and keeping in mind that some fields are so new that they don't have the same level of, you know, academic journals. But anyways, just and just helping each other as well. Like I have some friends and whenever we go for promotion, we just help each other out and we review each other's work and give supportive feedback. And I think that's part of, again, resisting that competitive environment part of a great uh, women in leadership group that I managed to apply to at the university that was in 2017 and we still meet up and we still have conversations and we still help each other with you know writing and that sort of thing so I think there's ways to navigate the academy but you have to spearhead it because I'm sure as you know and, and any academic would know is that the publisher parish is 
one of the dominant discourses, you know, you have to be that type of researcher. And if you want to excel, that's the way to go. And I don't think that that's true. Yeah. I mean, just to come back before I, I, I want to read a, a section here where you trouble that, but yeah, your one theme was game of Thrones, tyrants, gate, gatekeepers, and legends. So, and, and I mean, yeah, I, I think it comes back to this section right before where you say, you have these comments from colleagues that say like, don't worry, we've all been there. Just stand your ground or it's okay. You'll, you should, you should hear what they, they, they've done to me when I started or just yep. avoid the backstabbers. All they care about is their careers. And, mm-hmm. and, and, you know, it, after it's like, I gained sol- solace listening to their stories, which made me feel like I was not alone in how I experienced my first three years in academia. And yet I became even more frustrated at the recurring theme never ending vicious cycle of the powerful senior academic handing over an identity, a mentality, a predetermined path to follow, a recipe for producing another ruthless academic. And how do we change like so that competitive thing around high rank journals, which they're like the publishing houses and and the presence of the journal itself, and then who wants to get in there and prestige and then how many people actually read it, for example, (laughs) after versus for me, the privilege of working in a university is to leverage its resources to serve different communities. And if we're not serving the different yes. communities in terms of their needs, then what the hell are we doing? And so, yeah, publications are one aspect to kind of share about the insights that we learn. But if they're just insights for the sake of competing and sharing against each other, like, I don't know what we're doing in universities if we're just competing for that or competing for research dollars as opposed to trying to build community together to serve the different communities around the university. And, 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 you know, maybe that's a utopian statement that I just shared and that, that I hope doesn't disavow the different power dynamics that take place within any institution or work workplace, but how can we imagine it differently? And I think in this piece, you're calling on, on colleagues to do that, but also sharing with, the, you know, I think this piece is really important. It's an important insight and eye opening insight for grad students or early career profs to professors or academics to read. In New Zealand, the structure there is different. So in Australia and the UK, so you have like lecturer, senior lecturer, associate professor, professor. How does that all work in terms of for you and trying to navigate that? Yeah, you actually missed a step. We go on and on, Nicholas. So it's, uh, you, you come in, you come in as lecture, if you're lucky enough to come and lecture, a lot of people come in research fellow or, or um, professional teaching fellow. And that's really hard. Um, I would never want to be a professional teaching fellow. They just teach and teach and teach. I mean, the workload is so high. And a lot of people get stuck there. And it's really hard to make that jump up to lecture. So that's sort of the equivalent of assistant professor in the North American context. And then you have... See, we don't even have opportunities at Ottawa U for that jump. So from a long-term appointment, we don't like... The collective agreements exclude it. So there's a lot of work oh, that needs okay. to be And then so you go lecturer, which is kind of like assistant professor. Then you have senior lecturer. Then you have senior lecturer above the bar. You have to jump across a, <laughs> I don't know, a random bar. Who knows what that is? Um, senior lecturer above the bar. And it's a big deal to get above the bar. And then um, there's ranks in between that. Keep in mind, there's about, you know, seven, five to seven ranks in each of those that you have to move wow. up. And then you can apply to associate professor and then you can be a full professor. So there's so many more ranks underneath um, in that assistant professor um, equivalent or comparable that a lot of people don't understand. And a lot of people think when they see senior lecture, when I go to conferences internationally, they're like, oh, you're a lecturer, a sessional. It's like, no, 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 no. It's just the UK system. It's a different rank. (laughs) Yeah, no, it's different. Like I, I, yeah, it's different. Yeah, and we don't... uh, 
different possibilities and limitations around the the way in which ours is, for example, like not having the transition, but the argument that's often used is like, if we create these other categories, then we're not hiring individuals that can do where teaching's valued as much as research. And I'm not saying like, I think the article where you're told like only research matters, that that exists here too at our university, different contexts where only research is seen as opposed to teaching. Maybe teaching might be more valued now after the pandemic where people had to switch out in different faculties to teaching online for the first time. So maybe, maybe, maybe there might, they might yeah. be valued a little bit more in terms of doing that um, and, and, and a changing context, but who knows? Yeah. Who knows? Well, look, I thoroughly yeah. enjoyed our brief conversation. You this morning, uh, me this afternoon, and I do hope to continue it. And I look forward to reading more of your work as it comes out and, uh, Wishing you the best of luck with your two little ones and family. And if you on your sabbatical are out this way and in Ottawa, would love to, to meet up with you. And, and if your family's with you, your family as well. Thank, just thanks for coming on for the conversation uh, this afternoon and your morning. Thank you so much. And thanks for the invitation. This was my first podcast. I was a little bit nervous, but it just felt like a, a chat with a friend. So thank you so much. I really appreciate the opportunity. And it's nice to talk to other academics around the world about some of some of the other stuff that, that matters, kind of the, the, the topics that we ended with is, you know, who do you want to be and how do you navigate this? And just to know that everyone else is, is also on this journey as well. So a big, a big thank you. Well, thank you.